Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we are doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, I'm Alicia Garza. And I'm Ai-Jen Poo, and we are pumped because we have one of our favorite journalists joining us today, Erin Haynes. Hi. <laughs> yes, we're so excited to have you. Erin is a longtime journalist and editor at large at the 19th, which is a woman-led nonprofit newsroom and an author. She's done incredible work reporting on Breonna Taylor, the presidential campaigns of 2020, and more recently created Portraits of a Pandemic, a close look at how the pandemic has disproportionately impacted women. She's a powerhouse, someone I'm glad to call a friend. Erin, welcome, 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 welcome. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be in conversation with both of you. And it's going to be weird because I'm so used to asking both of you all the questions to make my reporting better. So now you get to turn the tables. Please be kind. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's I love so it. Exciting. You look very sinister over there. I don't know. <laughs> I was just going to go. I think for a lot of people this last year, there's been fear and separation, isolation, anxiety. Mm -hmm. I mean, what has kept you going physically, emotionally, and spiritually over the last year? How have you navigated this kind of rocky terrain? You know, I thought I was going to spend most of the last year focused on this hugely consequential election, which was consequential even before the pandemic happened, right? But then the pandemic hits and it's like, nope, we have a lane to cover every way that, that women and marginalized folks are being directly impacted by and responding to this crisis. You know, a lot of people in that moment were feeling kind of hopeless. They felt like they didn't really have control of, of their lives or what was happening in their lives. But, you know, honestly, one of the privileges of being a journalist and having this role is that I got to channel all of that energy into something that felt productive and useful and like what I needed to do so that there was a record left behind of how women and marginalized people responded in this moment mm-hmm. and what life was like for them in this mm-hmm. moment in particular. And so that honestly felt like my best and highest use in the pandemic. You know, but there also was just so much more of an awareness and an appreciation for the folks who didn't really have a choice about being out in the world because they did have to make a living even in this terrifying environment, right? Where people were absolutely at risk from a public health standpoint, but, but because they didn't want to exacerbate that with an economic crisis, they were mm-hmm. working. And, you know, I thought a lot about those folks in the pandemic and wanting to make sure that, that their stories were, were told. I mean, I can't thank you enough, really, because it's hard to imagine the story of 2020 without the 19th and you. And the fact right. that people understood what was happening in the pandemic through the eyes of women and women of color and women on the front lines. Really, I I think you played a huge role in opening up that story. And the fact that like, we are talking about a she session, the fact that we're talking about all the women of color who've been pushed out of the workforce, the fact that care is as much a part of the conversation as it is. I really, I just 
have to say thank you for holding those stories and telling them in a way that really did shape the narrative and help people see how this pandemic was really playing out for so many, the majority of us, right? Women. You can't talk about this economy getting back on track unless we're going to address the thing that decimated women in this pandemic. 2.5 million women having to drop out, you know, women having to make such difficult choices and, and the ones who were working being exposed but also understanding that even before, you know, the president decided to make this part of, you know, the infrastructure plan, knowing that these essential workers, right, of course, essential workers are part of this country's infrastructure, right? Because we don't get back to normal, whether you have children or not, whether you yourself are in the caregiving industry or not, like shoring that up and making that better for the people doing that work. Like if we don't figure that out, whether you are a government, state, local, or federal, right? Like if you are not thinking about these issues, your community will not be getting back to normal in the way that that you would want it to or expect it to. Well, let's talk about this normal piece for a second, because, um, you know, we've experienced some pretty significant transformations as a country. And I guess I'm wondering for you, Erin, Lots of people have said, right, that while some things may return to how we thought we knew them, um, that we are kind of forever transformed. This is actually our new normal. So I'm curious from your perspective, you know, is there a thing in this last year, given all the changes that have happened both in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in our political lives, is there one thing that you've learned or had to unlearn? I think what I had to unlearn was the idea that, you know, because women are so resourceful, women, marginalized Mm -hmm. folks, we are used to figuring things out for ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we usually have to, Uh, but that that actually shouldn't be acceptable. (laughs) You know, that, that people should respond just because of how necessary we are to the daily lives and experiences of people in so, so many ways, right? Like mm-hmm. like asking the people who were those frontline healthcare workers, who were those domestic workers, who were caregivers, whether it was for children or elderly people, uh, the people mm-hmm. who deliver all of those Amazon Prime packages that we have ordered mm-hmm. over the past year, who were delivering your groceries to your door so you didn't have to go to the grocery store and put on a mask. And mm-hmm. I think as a society, we have expected, well, you know, If you have children, for example, it's on you to figure out what to do with those children. It is not our responsibility. The child leave policies and and child care policies uh, that, that frankly, are not adequate, right? We know that now, that they are not adequate. And, And the idea that these are decisions that should be made in a personal household as opposed to ideas and, and, and policy that we should be reckoning with as a society. Uh, we have certainly been thinking about that much more deeply, I think, at the 19th, for sure. One of the things that people have been saying is that the pandemic, because it changed everything about how we live and how we work and how we care for each other, that it's kind of helped us see things that we needed to see for a long time. And I think your reporting has also helped to tell the story. And on some gut level, we all know that being seen is really important. But Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. And I want to ask you, I mean, because certainly 
and before I came to a newsroom where I was writing about race and now gender, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was writing about inequality, these disparities uh, for years <laughs> before we had a pandemic, just That's like right. both of you were working on these issues for years as activists mm-hmm. and organizers, right? It's not that we had not been saying these things. It's not that these things did not exist and that there were not people That's that right. were trying to point them out. It was that it was not urgent right. for people right. in the way that it has been urgent in That's the past year. So I, I wonder to both of you, like, do you feel like there is a momentum coming out of this pandemic, especially for those women, essential workers, caregivers? Do you feel like they are just not willing to go back to the way that things were before last March? Right? Like their their lives cannot be that again. Mm-hmm. As you know, as as the people who are used to being served are ready to get back out and be served. What we have seen is that people are ready and the urgency that they felt is amplified by the fact that a lot of people understand and see just how essential they are, just how hard it is without the care infrastructure or the good jobs and the paid leave and the that okay. the fact that all of these calls for justice and equity. I think the fact that we saw just how interconnected and interdependent everybody is, and the fact that the economy just collapsed underneath us in this moment has emboldened people who have been marginalized. I'm hopeful that the stars are aligning and we can turn kind of this awareness into actual structural change to address all these injustices that we've been screaming about for years. Um, But I think that on some level that's still up to us and still yet to be seen. But I I also think that this is probably our biggest moment in my lifetime. Aaron tried to turn the tables. This ain't your show. It's our show. (laughs) I was just thinking that. I was like, how's she what's she doing right now? Now that you mention it, I actually want to know something from you. I can't I can't help it. It's my default setting. My mama said I was nosy when I was growing up. It's it's just it's never gonna go away. I just get paid for it now. talk about what it means to go further, to be bigger, to be bolder. And you've been covering this election cycle. You've been covering uh, the changes in this administration and in the White House. You actually landed the first, yes, hunty, (laughs) the (laughs) the first interview with the first Black an Indian woman to ever be vice president mm-hmm. of this country, Kamala Harris. You also um, had some firsts of your own, right? Um, in terms of, you know, being the first to offer national news coverage of uh, Breonna Taylor's murder, mm-hmm. talking with her mom and her sister about yeah. two months after it happened. Talk to us about how you think about first um, in this context, right? you being the first, you getting the first, you interviewing the first, right? But also tell us what that might show us for um, this kind of transformed world that we're that we're now trying to navigate. So I do think a lot about first, um, you know, 2008, Barack Obama, first Black president, 2016, Hillary Clinton, you know, first woman to be major, um, you know, party nominee for president. 
I think about the fact that next year is the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm's pioneering presidential campaign, mm-hmm. right? 1972, first black woman to ever run for president uh, on a major party ticket. So thinking back over this past presidential election cycle, because, you know, compared to 2016, when you had this one woman running, right? And so you had a lot of voters saying, well, it's not that I wouldn't vote for a woman. I just don't want to vote for that woman. And mm. it's like, okay, I don't know how true that is. Maybe that's true, but we don't really have anyone else to, to, to kind of counter that argument. So, okay, we let you say that. Fast forward to 2020, six women run for president, right? Mm. Other diverse candidates on the ballot. And yet we still get to March of 2020 <laughs> and a race that don't comes down to, to two white men in their seventies. Listen, that was, that was what it was. And so I just, I got to see last year, just so much around the notion of electability and who was electable and what does that package get to come in, right? Covering Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial bid in 2018, right? right? Trying to be the first black woman ever in this country to become governor of a state didn't happen. It's like, and then who became it? (laughs) Right. You know, the thing about first, yes, we have to acknowledge the milestone. Yes, we have to recognize it. But I, I, you know, anytime I see, you know, a first, especially like on social media, oh, this is the first black woman to do this or the first, you know, uh, time a black person has ever done or any person of color or any, basically anybody who is not a white man doing something for the first time, right, that shows up on social media. It's just kind of like, okay, well, first of all, damn, why does this take so long? It's 2021, right? right? So like, <laughs> if, 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 even as I'm happy for that person individually, because they are smiling and they have accomplished something and that is great for them individually. It's like, well, damn, what does this say about our society that this is the first time this right. ever happened for anybody, much less this whatever, right. whichever particular person, right? But then also when we treat that first like a unicorn as if, there were not many other qualified, talented, capable people of color and or women, LGBTQ folks, whoever. It's not that they weren't ready. It's that we were not ready as a democracy, as a society, right, to recognize uh, these folks and what they brought to the table and, and, and just because of the package that it came in, right? You know, you think about the vice president, second most powerful person in the country at the end of the day, right? And so like yeah. just covering her as that, is very important for me. Yes, when she's at inauguration and she's being sworn in, you know the historic nature of that moment, right? First woman vice president ever, first woman of color to be in that role. But at the end of the day, like the more we just cover her being vice presidential, I think that that does so much to normalize women's leadership, right? And normalize the leadership of of people of color so that Mm -hmm. if somebody is a first, for me, they are an only until there's a second right. and a third and so and so forth and right. so on, right? Like they're the only person that's ever had this job because we mm. don't know if there's going to be a second, right? Barack Obama is mm-hmm. the only black president we've ever had. He's not the first. He's the only black <laughs> president the only. we've ever had yeah. because we haven't seen no. a second black president yet, right? That's, so that's a real thing. Normalizing the leadership of people who are not uh, white and not male is how we get beyond firsts and onlys. That's right. Mm-hmm. So when you're preparing for interviews like that and you have that in mind, 
that what you're trying to do is create a new normal, Mm -hmm. right? I can't even imagine how I would prepare for (laughs) the first major interview with our Madam Vice President. How do you think about that? Because I want to normalize her leadership, I'm going to ask her questions that I would expect her to be able to answer as the Vice President of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Asking her about her role as you know a partner in this administration what is your response to this pandemic what is your response to this economy what is the administration doing about racial equity where, you know where are we on climate change these are questions that you should be expected to answer because of the job that you have right that's right um but at the same time like we don't ignore um not your unicornness right as being this first and this only but the fact that you have a different lived experience than anybody else that has had this job, right? So we can also talk about how your lived experience is playing out in terms of the politics and the policy. Because Mm -hmm. I think that that matters, right? Like when she is convening a women's roundtable to talk about caregiving issues, right? You are making a choice to highlight Black Maternal Health Week as the vice president of the United States, right? That sends a message that this is important because the second most powerful person in the country is saying this is an issue. We need to be raising awareness about this. Second most powerful person in the country says anti-Asian violence is unacceptable. Yes, the president also said that. Yes, the president also condemns this violence. But it is different when you know the daughter of, of an Indian American immigrant says that people feel seen and heard, right? Because That's the right. vice president has now acknowledged you as somebody who shares their lived experience. So, you know, as we understand that all politics are identity politics, but like identity politics does not have to be a bad word. Like there is value in people's identity in how it plays out in whatever role that they have. Absolutely. I mean, all the inputs that make us who we are, how and why we lead, right? And one of the things that we read about um, in your history is the fact that you grew up in the Black church in Atlanta, and that your faith is a huge part of who you are and how you see the world. And talk to us about that. Talk to us about how your faith informs and elevates your work, especially in times like what we've just been through. You know, so I am from the South, which means that uh, there were no, certainly no shortage of of Black churches uh, in and around where I grew up. Um, my mom uh, was somebody who was raised as a Black Catholic, but but certainly wanted to expose us to a lot of different worship experiences. And so, you know, if I had friends, for example, who invited me to go to their church, she was very open to that. I got to see different worship experiences. Uh, but but yes, I, I you know was raised from a very young age with an understanding that a gospel of social justice, like those, were not competing ideas. Being from Atlanta, you kind of breathe in Martin Luther King. You don't just like learn about him, right? He's like everywhere in the in the ecosystem. And so, you know, I think that that absolutely helped to shape my reporting in terms of being thoughtful about who is not being seen and heard in our democracy and, and centering the voices of, of those people whether they are political or apolitical, frankly, but but who understand that our politics does have an impact on their daily lives, which I think is something that a lot of folks have become a lot more aware of. You know, my faith, I think, is it, it gives me 
just yet another lens and another language to speak to folks about our society and the choices that we make and the priorities that we set and why Mm. we do that and why we make some choices and why we don't make other choices. My faith helps me to have those conversations in my reporting, whether it makes it into stories or not, like just to have an understanding on people's perspective. But I will also say, you know, just the, the historic roots of the Black church, knowing that Black church's relationship to social justice, uh, particularly around mm-hmm. voting, talking to Black pastors, Black voters, yeah. and being able to see them as faith voters, which, you know, that's not what we talk about, right? We talk about evangelicals as, as faith voters, but we know the default setting in people's mind for evangelical mm-hmm. is a conservative white American, right? As if black and brown folks, voters of color cannot be faith voters as well. Having that awareness, I think also helps me to kind of shift the narrative right. about the intersection of faith and politics as well, which I think is very important because I think that faith absolutely plays a role in people's politics and what they decide to do at the ballot box. I agree. And I think it's part of also reporting from a kind of the lens of equity and and holistic um, yes. stories mm-hmm. about yeah. human beings, really thinking about uh, people's yeah. faith as a really important part of who they are and not wanting to ignore that, but actually lean into it and think about what it means yeah. for all of us. It's, I think, really important. Can we talk about these books you're writing? <laughs> we can definitely talk about book one, which is uh, very much in progress right now. It is about uh, Vice President Kamala Harris as kind of a case study for the rise of, of Black women's political power and, and what that means for the future of our politics. You know, I, I think we've seen Black women, whether they were elected officials, whether they were candidates for office, whether they were voters, organizers, donors, just becoming so much more aware of their power and really demanding that they be valued for their input and not just their output. If they were not going to be part of the agenda setting, as opposed to that six week push before the election where you need me to wrangle my community, my household, my sorority, my church, you know, my my links chapter, my whatever to get people to the polls, like, no, like, like this, this will be a holistic approach where I think another thing, especially on the voter organizer donor side, like, you know, for people, it was about their agency and not even necessarily about any particular candidate. Right. But it, it was really, right. and I'm not saying that it's not a powerful narrative, but like, you know, the idea that, especially for black voters, for black Americans, voting has always been kind of cast as this burden, right? Whereas for white Americans, voting is really a choice. Maybe I go to the polls today. Maybe I don't. Oh, it's raining. Not going. Black people, not enough black people not showing up. It's like, oh, you have let down the race, the community, the country, this democracy. How could you do this? Right. Mm -hmm. Framing it in that way. There's a new way of thinking about that, that I am looking to explore in this book, what does this look like more broadly, being able to to get into that and, and, and figure out what that means moving forward in Mm. places where like, again, there's still never been a black woman governor. Like what else do black women think that they are capable of coming out of this moment? Right. 
and not just in terms of elections, but also in terms of governing and holding people accountable for an agenda that they want to see. Oof, I'm so excited about this book. <laughs> I just got well, chills I, thinking about it. I guess I better it. get busy. I don't know how you have time for all of this. You're like reporting on the front lines of I everything. I don't either. <laughs> reporting on the front lines of everything. And then also catting off on Twitter, tweeting about Peppa Pig, you know, who I was yesterday years old when I learned who and what Peppa really? Pig is. I mean, oh my God. You want to break oh this God. down for us? Give us this give podcast us the scoop. is officially paying off because you have just brought up my favorite subject. You talk about self-care. Um, in the pandemic, I really leaned into my rage watching a British cartoon uh, called Peppa Pig. It is about a young girl pig and her family, her little brother, mommy and daddy pig, the whole community. I rage watched this because this pig <laughs> is not a good example for anyone for how to behave. And yet, there are supposed to be lessons in every episode, probably getting not the lessons that they intend for me to get from, from these. I'm picking up other things like daddy pigs, fat shaming and uh, Miss Rabbit <laughs> being overworked in this community. She has like 18,000 jobs. <laughs> you know, it's like, what is happening here? Why is, why is daddy pig being infantilized? They treat him like another child. Like, why is he not an equal parent here? They're always making fun of him. If any child that I knew acted like this, I would be very sad <laughs> for that parent. So yeah, but like I watch episodes and I, I end up live tweeting these episodes when they're on like, you know, the Nick Jr. marathon that I fall into. And it's hilarious because people are just like, oh my God, how old are your kids? And I'm like, nope, no kids. I just, you know, I, <laughs> this is my, this is my jam and I'm just, I'm, I'm doing this. But like anybody who's out there, look, if you, if you have seen Peppa, y'all know what I'm talking about. Like this pig. This pig I is do. a disaster. Um, and yet this, pig and yet is, this a disaster. is a billion dollar like international franchise. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Peppa Pig is like, she's actually, <laughs> she's not good. But like Miss Rabbit is definitely an essential worker in the pandemic. Like every time you turn around, like she is the, the bus driver and then you get to the destination and she's the cashier. Then you need some ice cream. And guess who's on the side of the road with an ice cream truck? It's like, damn, how many jobs she got? It is it is hilarious to me. Like I, she's a I, gig worker. She's definitely a gig worker, Jen. And I'm seriously thinking about just starting a spreadsheet with all of her gigs because every episode, <laughs> I'm like, wait, this is yet another. Like literally, they have like an episode where the family goes to the moon, and who was on the moon selling souvenirs? Miss Rabbit. How does she even get up there? Stop. I don't know. She's a hustler. She she's. She's about this life. She is she is really the pandemic would not have stopped Miss Rabbit. I'm determined that she would have No, and she doesn't have a single paid sick day. She mm-hmm. can't get PPE. No, no. no. no she would have she would have <laughs> sold PPE, first of all, and hand sanitizer. She would have had that That's on right. block from day one, but like no, she would have definitely had no choice but to go to work every single day. And um oh my God, it, I'm she would not have gotten right paid <laughs> for her day off to get vaccinated. Like none of this would have happened for her. This is a mess. This, this is, is mess. so good. <laughs> you know what, Erin? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Truly, truly thank you. Everybody, go and follow Erin at E Marvelous, which is also just so amazing. Everybody go follow Aaron at eMarvelous on all the socials. And while you're there, follow at SunstormPod also. If you have friends who aren't listening to Sunstorm yet, 
What are you waiting for? This party is for all of us. Till next time, loves. Ciao. Ciao. This was fun. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Ai-Jen Poo, and Christina Mevzapgar. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Shelby Sandlin, Mary Philip Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. These nails, Erin is giving me peach. It's peach for shot girl summer. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it's for. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>